Hello, and welcome to Leadership in Extraordinary Times, a podcast from Said Business School at the University of Oxford. I'm your host, Peter Tefano. Recorded as part of a series of live online events, in this episode, we go under the bonnet of a record-breaking partnership, Formula One Mercedes-AMG Patronus. Tuta Wolf and Tenku Tafik have led the teams behind seven consecutive double F1 World Championship titles in turbulent times, marked not least by the COVID-19 pandemic and increasing scrutiny around diversity and sustainability. Joining them to discuss how their approaches to leadership have delivered success are Oxford Said professors Mariah Besheroff and sharing the discussion, Professor Michael Schmitz. Here's episode four, Driven, how to fuel success through adversity. Hello, and welcome to today's Leadership in Extraordinary Times session from Oxford University's Said Business School. Wherever you are, whatever time it is, whether you're joining us live or you're enjoying the podcast, welcome and thanks for joining us. My name is Michael Smits. I'm a professor of management here at Oxford Said, and it's my great pleasure to host a conversation today on one of the central topics of leadership how to get ahead and stay ahead even in adverse circumstances. It is my distinct pleasure to welcome a panel um, that knows probably more than many others about this. Um, my first guest is Toto Wolf, team principal of Mercedes-AMG Petronas Formula One, who obviously crowned their record-breaking streak of wins with last season's seventh consecutive double world championship title. A very warm welcome, Toto. Hi, everybody. Toto is joined by Tenku Taufik, the CEO and president of Petronas, obviously the winning partnership uh, behind this team. And we will discuss together the success that the team has enjoyed, but also think about the various leadership challenges they face running organizations that are quite different in terms of scale, size and speed of change. But while the past season has been marked by some adversity, the COVID crisis obviously didn't spare Formula One. We should also think about some of the chicanes that might be lying ahead for Formula One and the petrochemical industry. So how do we sustain success through adversity in the future as we consider more closely the impact of both industries um, on society, sustainability and well-being? And that's why I'm delighted that together we will also be joined by my dear colleague, Professor Mariah Besheroff. She is the Professor for Organizations and Impact here at Oxford Said. Welcome, Mariah. Welcome to all of you. Now, Mariah and I have obviously a host of questions that we would love to ask uh, Toto and Tenku Taufik, but of course, we're also really keen to hear your questions. So whatever channel you're joining us on, please make ample use of the chat function. Send us your questions. Tell us where you are and the question you're interested in, and we will feed them into the conversation whenever possible. Now, of course, Toto, I started mentioning the, the record-winning um, streak that you crowned last year. And what I want to know, given that the current Formula One season is already underway, how do you leverage that track record in moments when maybe as at the moment you're possibly slightly less dominant? Um, do you leverage at all? Is it water under the bridge or is it something that the team goes back to in terms of sustaining their success into the future? Well, thank you for, for having us. It's quite interesting because there was something that I read from a famous baseball coach, yesterday's home run doesn't win you today's game. And that's very much true. 
so we are trying with simple actions to forget about the success of the past few years. Every point goes to zero and um, you can build upon the organization. And I'm going to come to that in a second. But as everything starts from new, you got you got to earn your laurels again. And we do this by basically eliminating all relics of the past, all trophies, everything that, that shows us that we have won seven consecutive uh, championships because you can't rely on that. I think it's important to, to acknowledge that the competition is fierce and it's the best people in the industry. And you got to just do the best job again in this, in this coming year, in every session and on every, in every day, rather than relying on uh, past year's success. Now, and I'm afraid then that I will have to bring up the past season uh, because obviously we would like to know how did the COVID crisis affect not just the team and obviously the way that Formula One operated, but, but also your personal leadership. Did you find that um, in the way you address the team, you lead the team, you, you had to change personally um, to kind of adapt to the circumstances? Yes, um, as everybody has, has had their experiences, is that we had to adapt. And in a way, also our team's mentality is that uh, almost the Darwinistic principle that not the strongest survive, but the most, the ones who, are, who adapt the best. And it was very different. The races got cancelled. We had to uh, shut down the factory first in a mandatory shutdown and then slowly everybody started to come back. We had to balance out who was coming back and who not, whilst not, uh, of course, losing performance, but Obviously, the most important was not risking anybody's health. And for me personally, it was uh, quite a, a dramatic experience because I'm used to run in the hamster wheel and it's what I enjoy to, to do. And suddenly the music stops and you find yourself uh, in a situation that you haven't been before. And at the beginning, it was very dif difficult to understand where that was going. But um, I take the positives out of it that I have learned to slow down. I've had, I spent time reflecting on the team's success and what I was um, expecting from myself going forward. And I very much encouraged everybody in the team to do this as well. And when you're in such a situation that you are allowed actually to lean back and spend time thinking, that brings great advantages long-term because you're moving from the dance floor to the balcony and long-term this has only positive effects. And then obviously, like many other conventional industries, it has created a better work-life balance. People can work more from home rather than rushing into the office in the morning just because you need to. So overall, aside of the health situation, obviously there are some positives that we, are, that we have to adapt to. Okay. And, and this, this whole idea of finding some distance stepping onto the balcony, finding time to think about the future is obviously a theme we're going to revisit later on as we think about Formula One and the future of the, the petrochemical industry from a balcony perspective. But of course, I would first like to go to Tenko, please, because your experience of leadership in the pandemic has obviously been a very different one, because as I understand, you acceded to the role of CEO pretty much in the midst of the pandemic. Um, what does that do to your leadership, to the way you build connection with the organization? Um, you, you manage your own personal leadership when you're stepping into this kind of top role at a distance. Thank you, Michael. Thank you, Mariah. Thank you for having me. Uh, it's a great question to kick off this panel uh, discussion. 
first thing it does is, of course, raise your blood pressure. I, I can look back at it and maybe have a wry grin and, and look at it and say, I joined the roller coaster as it was about to do probably one of the most interesting loop-de-loops the, uh, uh, the industry had contended with. 2020 was a year of superlatives, I think, it, and superlatives at both ends of the spectrum. The fastest acceleration of uh, digital solutions in response to having to work from home. The most precipitous drop in oil and gas demand and energy demand dropped. I think uh, if, if those of you who were tracking the industry would have seen 20 to 25 million barrels of oil demand a day just evaporate. We never saw oil prices move into negative territory, but it did with the WTI. Brent hit a multi-decade low, and all of this happened when energy transition was accelerated. It became a lot more evident, and the demand for sustainable and responsible practices by people within the energy industry became far more pronounced. I, I don't have to expound the uh, more evangelical and activist uh, uh, actions of, of shareholders and investors across the world as they made their stance known in the capital markets. All of this, while we're wrestling today, uh, when the numbers stand, uh, stands uh, tragically, we've got 100, about 180 million cases worldwide. In Malaysia alone, we've hit a, an intraday high of 9,000 daily cases, Petronas, uh, it's sad for me to sometimes acknowledge, but we've lost 18 people in our family, and these are, these are people who are staff and contractors. So all of these combine uh, in, in a cocktail that forces leadership. And at this juncture, when you are put in this seat, the first thing that people ask of you and your leadership team is to remind them of purpose and make them stay the course. And uh, as you go, and the old saying goes, the best sailors are made in the roughest seas and you go and traverse and navigate this very, very uncertain environment, you're always there to act as sounding board and to unleash successes, small as they may be, but making sure those wins happen in sequence repeatedly, even through the darkest of times. I think uh, our financial results bear it out. In 2020, it was not a good set of numbers. We've come back and uh, recovered in the first quarter uh, we've just released our financial results yesterday. So there is light at the end of the tunnel. It's just a very long tunnel and it's got, it's got uh, hoops, dips and loops to, to ride through. Uh, it, I, I don't mean to trivialize this, but this is a period that has forced a great reset for the industry. Everybody's just got to rethink the entire approach to providing energy and solutions to their customers. Mariah, obviously you've spent plenty of time thinking about these kind of crucible leaderships, the crucibles in which leaders are forged. And it sounds like that, that Tenko was thrown deep into a very, very fiery one. Um, so do you think this is kind of a, an opportunity even for, for leaders to, to step through that and grow through that? Or how do we think about these kind of challenges of leadership? Absolutely, Michael. It's both opportunity, it's obviously challenge, right? And I think uh, we heard from both Tenku and Toto about uh, the different ways in which the past year for both of them as individual leaders uh, and also for their organizations has really been one of grappling with the, all sorts of competing demands, competing strategic priorities, competing human priorities uh, that we often wish weren't competing, but sometimes it feels that way and it's felt especially that way in the last year. Uh, and a lot of what, what we heard from them was about 
certainly the ways in which uh, that has been extremely challenging uh, personally for their, their people, for their organizations, but also how it's been an opportunity for growth and development, both for them as individual leaders uh, and certainly an opportunity for the organization. Uh, the word of reset, of sort of focusing in on purpose has come up already in our discussion. Uh, and one of the things that we've seen certainly in this last year, but really across work on leadership across industries and over time is the ways in which these kinds of moments, uh, this is a particularly extreme moment that we've been in this past year, but there are many more minor kinds of moments like this really, of course, present challenges, but open opportunities for new creative ways forward to emerge as leaders develop and as their organizations develop. Great. And I mean, if I, if I just play this back then to, to Tenku, if I may. So in a world where you initially connect in this, this virtual way, and we, we hear this all the time, at the moment about the return to the office, how do we sustain culture? As you assert your leadership in this very turbulent time and doing so without the ability to meet many people face to face, have you found that there are certain elements of your, your culture that are easier to maintain or are there some that, that you find that take a little bit more work uh, from a corporate leader to, to sustain? Yeah, this is a, a very pertinent and timely question. Um, I think uh, isolation, uh, not being able to enjoy team dynamics. I think myself and Toto have often discussed about this. Like the, the dynamics of being able to interact and bounce off ideas is invaluable. But what the pandemic has forced upon us is a virtual reality that we have to deal with and everything was accelerated. Uh, in typical fashion, uh, a very risk-averse organization uh, straddling many geographies would have taken many, many months to test bed, roll out in waves and pilot programs, how to get to a universal virtual communications platform. We didn't have any choice. When the pandemic arrived and the WHO confirmed it was a pandemic, it was go. And basically from the word go, you had to manage deliverables, you had to manage outcomes from remote, uh, from remote locations and you could not get the contact or the uh, interactions that you are normally used to. Uh, this may have, and I think Mariah will probably be able to comment about this later on, uh, may have long-term impact. We've had intakes who have not seen their superiors. We've had team members who've not been able to interact physically in a room for more than a year. Everybody foresaw this to be a three to six month phenomenon, but the reality is we're dealing uh, with a pandemic which may last uh, for quite a while yet. So we've just had to cope. And I think Mariah's uh, point earlier around using this crisis and eking out all the opportunities to improve uh, ways of working has come uh, to bear, of course. Uh, we found that you can really reduce your energy consumption, that things can be done more efficiently. But one thing has come out very, very strongly as leaders in your team, you can never, ever under-communicate. It is repeat, reach out, reinforce, repeat, re reach out and reinforce. And ultimately, also as team leaders, you have to reassure. It's a great point to maybe bring in some of the questions that we've been receiving in the chat. And I'm going to combine some of them. But, but Takis and Ariana both raised related questions uh, to Toto about the, the role of culture um, in sustaining your team, especially through the past year, uh, and the role of your, your leadership style. How would you describe yourself as a leader? So always very slippery slope if you start to describe your own leadership. I think what what is key to how I try to uh, work within the organization is uh, the relationships. I really put a lot of 
time into the relationships with my direct reports, but also the people that I that I get to interact whilst um, crossing them in the in the corridors or on the racetracks, and um, I think they feel that I care. In a way, I see the organization and also the, the wider part as my tribe that I'm responsible for to protect, to lead in the right way. And uh, I take great pride in doing that. And so I believe the key component for myself, and obviously that is not, can't be a general rule, is that I'm so interested in, in getting to know and understanding uh, what worries um, what worries our our people, what incentivize how to incentivize them, what motivates them them, and I try to provide a framework for each and every one. Because we we're always speaking about companies or teams, but at the end of the day, it's all the people. And I have the feeling that us uh, or that that some of my peers they, they think about their own life, how how can I have an impact within the organization? How do I want um, to organize my time? How, I, how do I want to be incentivized? And they forget they need to, they need to put the same amount of time into anal analyzing what are all the people that they have direct interaction with? What do they want? How do they see their life panning out? And if you can find alignment between the objectives in your life, I think then you have a very, very strong position. And uh, I can't design an aerodynamic surface but I know a lot about the person who can, and they feel that I care. And uh, in a way, they are my most important, in a way, customers. I, I have this customer theory. Customers are people that, that are important in your life. Everything that I communicate or that I um, plan strategically is about the people in the organization. Mm -hmm. Now, you say that, that you care and you want to understand what others worry about, and of course, the, the risk for a leader in a way is then that you absorb a lot of that. And so Amina asked the question in the chat is like, how do you make sure that you yourself remain mentally balanced? And of course, you face the added pressure that every weekend um, you're expected to explain those emotions also on television. There was an earlier comment in the chat. Again, how do you manage the, the emotional investment in the team um, and how you behave backstage? with also your use or display of emotions on a, on a more public stage? So a few questions. Um, I found out that as someone that is more in the spotlight in front of a camera representing fantastic brands such as Mercedes and Petronas, I need to be authentic. But I have also seen that when I see people that have more, let's say, visible roles, you tend to think they're happy, they have everything in their lives, good relationships, uh, uh, money, and success. The truth is, that is not a universal um, rule. I myself, before I joined Formula One, I had a bit of a, well, that's actually an under, under, uh, under what do you say, under exaggeration. Um, I had a real midlife crisis. I didn't know whether I should stay in finance or whether I should do something else. And I found myself at the Monaco Grand Prix by sheer coincidence. And for me, everybody who was there working in the teams was just living the perfect life. So fast forward 20 years and I find myself in the same situation. And I still struggle um, in, in, in a way um, at times. Uh, we need to, we just need to understand that we're all having bad days or bad weeks or bad, bad months where 
where we need to spend time with ourselves and comprehend what makes us happy and and not. And I think this reflection helps you to better understand how you want to structure your life. So to come back to your question, like many other people, I struggled from um, mental health issues and I have a great team. I mean, this is not a universal, you know, I am uh, pathologically um, uh, ill. It's more that I acknowledge that all the best people that I have worked with, they, they have downtime. And if, there is, if they have a great group around them, the group will carry the ball. And for me, that was last year. COVID came and I didn't really know uh, whether I wanted to continue um, in the sport, whether I was a one-trick pony or finance was what I actually uh, wanted to come back. And um, for months, I couldn't find an answer to my questions. And obviously, then, then you're not the best yourself. So in order to protect the organization, in order to create the best possible framework, you need to look after yourself. If, if I'm not in a good place, I can't, uh, and, and this is something my technical director uh, used when I said, I'm just not the best me, and um, I, I, I will come back in a few days. He said, take all the time, because when you come back, you need to sprinkle your, your magic dust. If you, if, you, if you don't feel like you can at the moment, um, that's okay. We will carry carry the ball, and that is something that I found really reassuring and showed me that the organization that we have all been part of is really strong. That um, if you need to put yourself uh, out for a moment, somebody else is going to carry the ball. Great. Um, let's pose that same question to Tenku, if I may. Um, we all know that as CEOs um, step up into the role, media scrutiny. You mentioned shareholder scrutiny um, multiplies. Um, so again, how did you kind of brace yourself for the role or, or is there anything that still has taken you by surprise in the way that, that you manage yourself uh, in this new role? Uh, <laughs> great question. Uh, you're always going to be surprised. Uh, nothing ever comes around twice in this, in this industry. And I think uh, one of the probable pitfalls of this particular role is uh, we're a national oil company. We were born as a national oil company. We have uh, defined our purpose and we behave very much as a, an IOC, an international oil company. And we have the processes and the governance around it. But seriously, no system really gets uh, proven until it gets tested. And every individual within the system got tested fully last year. And I have no exception. Um, there were mistakes. I, I, will, I will be the first to admit it. There were mistakes in, in dealing with the press. There were mistakes probably in dealing with uh, the narratives around uh, perhaps uh, the way that we structured our capital, uh, communicated our growth story. But people know that this, these were probably steps taken uh, to improve your situation out of a crisis. And people, people accept that over time. Uh, there is a degree of latitude you need to give this management. No one's been in this position before. I, I, can, I can say that everyone within the CEO role of an energy company has not seen this triple threat of an, a supply glut, an accelerated energy transition, and, and the demand falling away from under our feet converging in such rapid fashion, wrapped around a pandemic which still threatens us today. So mistakes will be made. As leaders, you will need to allow for it. And I think uh, 
I'm, I'm thankful I've got a board which is supportive, a shareholder I can be open with. The, the shareholder is the government of Malaysia. My, my, my communication with them has been quite frank and open, uh, and, and we tell them the constraints and limitations uh, that we face. But there you are. I think uh, communication again comes uh, to the fore. Uh, just as Toto says, sometimes in meetings things get uh, a little bit too heated. Sometimes you don't think uh, in the most uh, clear fashion. It is not the most opportune moment for you. You need to distance yourself from the noise. And boy, was there a lot of noise last year, and there's still a lot of noise going on now. Great. Mariah, I know that obviously the role of, of emotions in leadership personas is an is a area of great interest for you. So please add your comments. Yes, thank you, Michael. Uh, and it's great to hear uh, both from Toto and Tenku on these topics. They resonate a lot with what we hear in our work with leaders across industries uh, in, in working with the crisis, but also uh, in other in, in less unusual or extraordinary times, shall we say. I want to just amplify a few points that we've heard. First, uh, from Toto, a lot of what, uh, what we heard you describe was, was really uh, consistent with an approach that we see increasingly needed and, and thankfully also increasingly common among leaders, which is one that is much more of um, not just the leader as the visionary out there in front leading the charge, but the leader as the facilitator uh, and the leader as creating the space in which others can engage and listen and there can be dialogue and there may even be conflict. There often is conflict, constructive conflict ideally, um, but that the role of the leader uh, very much as you described is one of creating the space to listen, to understand others and to allow people to find their own role and fit in the organization and to help them best align their interests and capabilities with uh, the organization's need. And of course, as you also said, that takes a lot of work and a big toll on the leader, right? And so another important theme that I'd like to amplify is really uh, the need to, to, to do the self-work, if you will, to take care of yourself, uh, as you discussed, uh, and to find the capacity to really to hold the complexity of the, the senior team uh, and the, the organization as a whole and to be able to bring all of your strength to that. And sometimes that does require stepping back, as you've said, it certainly also often requires a strong support network uh, and team within the organization and of course also outside the organization. And then thinking about Tenku's comments, one thing that uh, came up in what you were just saying, but also in some of your earlier comments about culture, uh, I would highlight around experimenting and learning, right? We're all uh, sort of navigating this uh, for the first time, right? This is a, it's an unprecedented experience. And the need to see these moments, of course we need to perform, we need to be accountable, but to see these as moments for learning, we're not always gonna get it right. Uh, it's uncharted territory. Uh, and what we can do is to learn from how things unfold, to reflect, and to, to try again to adapt. Uh, and so this notion of this as a special time, but, but always in this mode of experimenting and learning. And right now, if we think about the kinds of swings and the missteps and the challenges we're having, it may be very, very extreme. Uh, in normal times, we hope the oscillations are somewhat narrower. Uh, and as we've moved through the pandemic, I think uh, I, this may resonate with both of your experiences and certainly with the leaders and organizations I've studied. We've seen a lot of learning along the way and more refinement in how we're going to move through this as organizations and as a society. 
And if I can just build on that, both Tenku's comment about, well, mistakes were made and, and they naturally are in these unprecedented circumstances. And Mariah spoke about learning and experimentation and it really resonates with a whole host of questions we're getting via the, the chat. Uh, Magdalena, I just put, picked up asking about, well, if I paraphrase, but what's the error culture and how do you deal with mistakes um, that also get made by others um, inevitably within the organizations? How do you manage those uh, in these times of uh, of uncertainty? Uh, and maybe we can go back to Tenku first with that. And of course, I would also then later like to hear from Toto, where obviously some of the mistakes that happen may be incredibly public and visible uh, to millions of people who are watching uh, on the television. So how are those being uh, being managed? But let's hear from Tenku first, because obviously you, you started this conversation about how we deal with, with mistakes. Uh, thank you, Mike. I as, as a leader, one of the things that I developed very quickly with the uh, leadership team was to promote and push a culture, and we really have this documented, we tell people to speak up. We need, as leaders, to create a space that allows diverse opinions to be heard, because what worked before, I think Toto started the session off, what worked before and what got us here may not work now and won't get us there. I think uh, these things will almost always prompt novel new approaches, solutioning for problems that we've never encountered before. So speaking up must now be a readily available and practiced culture in Petronas, and we're trying to push it day in and day out. The second, of course, is the courage to act. Uh, I, how do I do this without besmirching the industry? Uh, the oil and gas industry is probably characterized by making multi-billion dollar investments, uh, yielding hundreds and thousands of barrels of production from a, a given location, and there's very little room for error. So we are probably very much, uh, without, without uh, casting any aspersions to any one profession, we're very much an engineering and innovation-led industry. So we love checklists, thousands of checklists, and we like to make sure every T is crossed and I is dotted before we move on and make a decision. Because there's billions at risk, uh, capital is at stake, and of course you can't go wrong. Uh, any environmental uh, impact would be disastrous. So in a time like this where you're forced to respond to customer centricity around your product and what you bring to the market, the, the need for experimenting, as Mariah has mentioned earlier, is just going to be far more often and far more rapid. Therefore, our staff need to have the ability and the ownership and the courage to act. And that's what I encourage across the entire team in Petronas right now. There's got to be a very strong departure from the old hierarchical way of uh, approaching uh, problems and concerns and challenges. You've got to get to a solution space quickly, test it, validate it, move to scaling it up, and you can't wait. Uh, and in this kind of uh, volatile swing that Mariah alluded to, this need has never been more pronounced. Thank you. Toto, let, let's hear from, from you on the, the management of learning, experimentation, but as I say, sometimes also very public mistakes that are being made. First of all, I must say that um, hearing, thank you, Taufik's empower about empowerment and um, about speaking up shows how aligned we are as organizations and in our 10-year partnership we very much um, follow that philosophy we have a um, one motto that we try to make everybody in the company to live it day in and day out and this is uh, see it say it fix it 
you are allowed to speak up. Actually, if you don't, you're harming the organization. And that is something that may seem trivial. And of course, you need to speak up, but you need to create the environment for this to happen and not only put it on a PowerPoint and project it on the wall. The empowerment and, and creating that safe environment means that people are not afraid of losing their jobs. They are not afraid of taking risks um, because risks mean also innovation, but rather have, have a space um, and an environment where they can thrive. And we have very much worked so hard over all these years and to, to achieve a situation where we have a collective organization that is able to bring their inputs and their innovation to the table through the hierarchies. Um, the head of department mustn't be worried if one of the workers below him presents something to a manager high up that he feels uh, is the right person to talk to. Obviously, with, the, with always in, having somebody, having his direct manager in, in, in copy, but no problem to move through the, through the hierarchies. And I think this is um, extremely important. And it starts with the leaders. I remember when I first joined the team in 2013, we have this big debriefing on Monday morning. It's the 50 top managers that come together after race to uh, debrief on the race weekend. And it starts with myself and it ends with myself. And what, how I started my first ever debriefing was to say what I didn't do well that weekend and that I uh, interfered into the strategy call at not the opportune time during the race and that I had a discussion on future regulations with the governing body and I don't think I got it right. And I saw the surprise of the people in their eyes um, that I that that it started that way. But over time, uh, it became really ingrained in the organization. And when you listen to a debrief today after a weekend where we finished first and second, you would think that this is Williams debriefing from the weekend uh, on a 10th on a place. And I don't mean that in an arrogant way. It's just a culture that that is always skeptical. We always believe we're just not good enough. We have to stay on our toes in order to maintain that success. And that start with going sometimes where it hurts. But they say, if you don't go there, then, then you're not going to improve as an organization. And it needs to start with, with all of us leading organizations. Toto, you've been uh, reflecting on, on what we talk about in, in organizational behavior and leadership work as a culture of psychological safety and a culture of learning. And we've also heard this from, from Tenku. And I'd, I'd like to pull out a, a few of the really important insights that we've heard across both of your last few comments around how to create that kind of culture. And most importantly, how to build it so that it's in complement to rather than at the expense of performance and accountability. And I think we could see that very clearly, Toto, in what you were just talking about, that the drive to learn and to improve is in the service of performance, right? It's not a way to allow people to make mistakes and let them off the hook. And that has to be the way in which these kinds of learning cultures are built, that people feel comfortable in their teams, in their groups, speaking up, saying when they made a mistake, when there was a near mistake that might not actually have ever been noticed, but it's an opportunity to learn and to adapt our processes. And that that is an, a chance to improve performance rather than again, to let people off the hook. And so this is a very tricky balance to strike between learning and performance or learning and accountability. And we've heard in both of your comments, 
the ways in which that sounds very much like what you have tried to do and to build in your organizations. And of course, in this past year in particular, it's been especially, especially critical. Well, we're already more than halfway through our time. Uh, so a quick moment to welcome all of those of you who, uh, who joined us in the meantime uh, for this Leadership in Extraordinary Times session discussing how to sustain success through uh, adversity. I'm joined by Toto Wolf, team principal of Mercedes-AMG Petronas Formula One team, uh, Tenku Taufik, the CEO of President of Petronas, uh, as well as my colleague, Professor Mariah Besharov, who is Professor of Organizations and Impact here at Oxford Said. Now, we spent the first half hour discussing largely the past season uh, and the winning streak that uh, both Toto, uh, Tenku and their, their organizations have enjoyed together in partnership. We heard about the crucibles of leadership stepping into leadership positions during times of adversity. Um, and we want to advance now thinking about some of the broader questions uh, beyond the personal leadership leading the teams but also obviously thinking about the leader's role in affecting their industry such as formula one or the petrochemical industry um, more broadly but before we get there i'm just really intrigued to pass on one of the questions that has been raised in the chat now multiple times actually um muhammad i think was the first one to come out of that What's the question you would like to ask each other or what's a leadership trait that you've witnessed in each other that you might to emulate, even though I think you've actually never met in person to date? Um, Tenko Taufik and, and I never met in person because when he joined the board as a chief executive officer, um, COVID um, stroke and uh, we have had uh, many conversations over video calls or on the telephone. But it's just a pleasure to see um, a person leading one of the most one of the most important organizations for ourselves. Because Petronas is not only a marketing partner; Petronas is also a fuel and oil supplier, and that is a real competitive advantage that, that we have in terms of lead time. Having such a similar mindset like myself, and the question I would have for you, Tenko Taufik, how can you make sure that your messaging? and your culture and your vision for the company is really cascaded down in the, into the organization. Because we as leaders, it's easier to communicate directly with your direct reports and people that, that are not somehow struck in front of you. They obviously can, you know, they, they know you, they met you, they know you're just a human being as themselves, but how can you make sure that the people underneath, the managers underneath really transcend the same kind of mentality that they allow their people to speak up. And obviously in a vast organization like Petronas, multinational, how can you make sure that this is actually happening? <laughs> you pulled that one out of the bag, Toto. Um, wow. Uh, great question. This is easily something I can recount because it's how I responded to this role in a time of crisis. Uh, within my first three to five days, I, I, I reached out and had very open conversations with my immediate contemporaries, the executive leadership team. Not very long after that, I reached out to the immediate level below them. In both, I kept my message quite simple and consistent. We're in this together. There is a purpose that binds us. I'll make mistakes. I'll need you to tell me if I'm making mistakes. And I'm also going to ask you why you're doing what you're doing. 
And in those engagements, I think the sense was, let's drop our titles at the door. So that's your immediate leadership circle. After that, it's been communicate, communicate, communicate. It is now 9.41 p.m. in, in KL, and I, I, I actually like doing this outreach uh, with, with uh, people like yourselves as partners and stakeholders. But I've done this far, far more many times throughout this pandemic. Uh, and this is one of those things that when a crisis presents an opportunity, given the platforms that are availed to us, that's how you get through. You make time, you spend the hour and a half speaking to groups of 30, 40, 200 people. You reach out, understand their worries, understand their concerns, because everybody was scared. Everybody was scared, and it's, job, it's just our job to remind them that we're united in purpose. And in Petronas, that purpose is not money or profits. The purpose is to become a progressive energy and solutions partner enriching lives for a sustainable future. Sounds very, very idealistic if you, hear, if you read it for the first time, but note what's missing. We didn't spell out that we're, a, we're an oil and gas player. We are here to provide solutions. We're here to affect lives, and we damn well intend to be relevant for the future. And notwithstanding how much pain you faced in this past year, repeating this message and saying it's painful now but we'll get through this together was repeated so many times uh, not only by me but by my leadership team that i now have come into the habit of calling all my contemporaries employees and colleagues my brothers and sisters we're part of a family here and we've got to survive this together Great. Thank you very much. And now, obviously, that's your opportunity then to, to return the favor um, to Toto. So one, one, one question I have to deal with, Toto, is because of time scale, right? I deal with decisions that span investment life cycles, which uh, go into the years. When you make your decisions and you don't have perfect information sets, what keeps you going and helps you sleep at night knowing if you recount the events of the race I made the right call there then. Do you second guess yourself? Do you see yourself and constantly self-critique? How do you keep all of that in a bottle and keeping it, keep it going for the next race and the next race and the next race after that? A very good question also. I think when you look at our organizations, you would say that an F1 team is probably more interested in the short-term future, but it's not quite as simple because we are part of a group um, of stakeholders that define future regulations, um, that define the strategy, the long-term strategy. How do we see the sport in 10 years from now? Uh, what are the communication channels and the way of um, de deploying our content? Uh, what kind of technology do we want to have in our cars in, in terms of uh, sustainable fuels or hybrid engines, electric um, propulsion? And so you, I need to balance my time between being part of the decision-making process going forward because the platform needs to fly. And only if we're having fans and audiences interested in the sport, then we as Mercedes, we can promote what we are doing. And then on the other side is this very short-term interest where we have a product and that is the, the race car and its power unit. And how can we optimize it and how can we learn from our mistakes? So 
I he often hear that organizations that are um, public that say it's really difficult for us to deploy a long-term strategy because we need to quarterly report and we need to satisfy our stakeholders, be it the analysts or shareholders. Well, now industry we report 20 times a year because you're only as good as your last race and everybody swings between mania and depression. If we lose, it's the end of the Mercedes era. If we win, it is the um, dominant force um, going, going, uh, going forward in the next five years. So it is very important to balance between those two short and long-term interest of the team. And the short-term interest comes back to what, what you said before, and that is the brutal transparency within the organization. We need to be able to learn from our mistakes because there is just two options. You make a mistake, you cover it up, or you're not in a safe place to talk about it, or you utilize that as an opportunity to actually develop and learn. And I've heard a sentence that was, when it stings, it sticks. So the painful uh, moments in the races are the ones that make us progress the most. And in that respect, every weekend is about brutal analysis of what is happening in the days after the weekend, and then utilizing those learnings for the next race to come and for the future development of, of every component in the car. So it comes back down to this, to the culture of really being transparent with each other because we share the same objective, creating a safe, safe environment and using the power of the collective intelligence of the people in order to solve the problems. And I think you've, you've beautifully set up the, the final quarter of our conversation, the last lap, if you will, talking about, well, the imminent performance pressures, but also the long-term expectations, which are obviously huge for, for both of your respective industries. Um, so thinking about sustainability, CO2 emissions, um, we've seen your pledges. So uh, I'll come to Toto first, because obviously Mercedes is a huge name in Formula One, carries some weight. We see um, challenger series like Extreme E, Formula E. Um, Formula One is supposed to be the, the pinnacle of driving technology. So if driving technology is electric in the future, we see the end of the combustion engine. Is, is Formula One running out of road? Obviously, the two industries that we are representing are really at crossroads um, because of the way how mobility is changing going forward. The oil and gas industry need to think how to reinvent themselves long term whilst, not, whilst continuing to generate profit and developing their own organizations to the, in the short and midterm. And the same is, applies to the auto industry. Uh, it's, it's pretty much we're heading towards an unknown. Um, we have obviously all these projections of how electrification is going to influ influence our industries. But the same applies to Formula One. We can never, um, uh, we can never behave in a way that you know we are the largest sport in the world and we are safe. And that's why Challenger Series like Extreme E or Formula E will will never actually uh, steal our thunder. But in comparison, Formula One generates about 1.5 billion viewers a year, and none of the other series have come anywhere close to it. Formula E is probably a percent of that and Extreme E just had the second race, so they are not, they're not um, visible um, as it stands. But 
we believe that technology joins entertainment, joins soap, is what makes Formula One stand out. And we need to be proud on our technology um, uh, looking forward. We, we are in the, in, in the process of developing a new power unit for 2025 and beyond, um, def defining the new fuels, um, sustainable fuels of the future. So technology is absolutely a must. We cannot ignore what is happening in the world. We cannot run on 12-cylinder engines just because we love the sound. Um, it is important to be at the very um, edge of high-tech. That's number one. Number two, we need to continue to entertain. And that is about stories. It's about personalities. Um, people like to follow people um, much more than you could say a sports organization. We've seen that Netflix that covered a lot of the drivers that are not so visible um, uh, when you look at the sports, at, at the sports news. And people are really interested in, 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 in looking at the drama and glory of other individuals. And that is what we really need to carve out in, in, in our sport. And the soap part has always been uh, within the DNA of Formula One, we are there is a political battle off track. There is a sporting battle on track. We provide uh, headlines uh, over the twelve months of the year, and and it's a bit of a reality show that has been created by Bernie Ecclestone. And as long as we never feel safe of in the kind of mentality, we are the biggest, um, we're the best invention since sliced bread. Uh, we will stay on our toes. We will make sure that we learn from Challenger Series um, and, and continue to develop the product, product and that is Formula One. But I believe we are in a great place. Uh, uh, when I look at our audiences, they continue to grow over all channels. And we just, you know, uh, we just need to continue to do, the, to do the proper analysis and develop it. Yeah. If I just play this across to, to Tenku then, uh, and Stephen from, from Derby raised the question, what presentations, uh, preparations are Mercedes F1 and, and Petronas making for, for the post-internal combustion engine world? Um, so given that this is currently your, your bread and butter business, how are you evolving your business and how do you see the, the partnership with Mercedes Formula One evolving into a carbon dioxide neutral world? A lot of analogies there can be drawn. I think uh, the world of, of F1 has moved to a hybrid power unit. And you're looking at a lot of, uh, I alluded to the corporations within the energy space having to contend with a great reset. And it's the same with us. Any uh, oil and gas entity has now got to reposition itself very quickly. If you're in denial of energy transition being here and having arrived, I think you are going to suffer what a lot of people have described as the boiled frog syndrome. You're thinking everything is all right and one day the whole industry is going to evaporate under you. The trick is to make sure this transition happens uh, in the most systematic way that balances lives and livelihoods uh, and also the economic interests of the multiple jurisdictions contending with energy transition. And as an energy provider, uh, and, a, and a solutions provider for many, many people and many, many customers across the world, we've got to make this as uh, seamless and as painless as possible. It takes a lot of capital to get to an energy transition. I think the IEA has uh, 
issued a fresh report. We've heard anywhere between four, four and a half to five trillion dollars of uh, renewables investments required every year to get to the kind of climate targets that, that everyone is collectively aiming for. Everybody knows this. I've come on this, on this show on the back of a, a series of debacles which have impacted uh, the largest oil corporations in the world. We have evangelical and activist shareholders pushing for more energy reform in the boardroom. We are looking at uh, distinct energy transition strategies being propounded by IOCs uh, across the world, listed or otherwise. For us, our position is that there is no one pathway to achieving this goal. Every region will have to contend with it. I don't want to sound like I'm standing on a soapbox here, but in this corner of the world where the access to electricity is probably still a fresh luxury, uh, earlier this decade, we've got 600 million people still not having uh, access to regular electricity or clean water, and that's just arrived earlier this decade and, and in parts of Africa as well. And then you're dealing with a, a policy shift that is going to take away a lot of uh, hydrocarbon-fueled uh, economies. You're going to have to plan for a shift. Petronas is well positioned to deal with that. And there's a lot of lessons that we take out of F1. Exactly what uh, Toto has mentioned. This transition will need to make us work that other muscle a little bit stronger. More power to the second engine, so to speak. The moving away from the traditional internal combustion reliance. So for Petronas, you've got to deal with almost one part of the business that needs to squeeze out the last available power and efficiency as cleanly as, and as cheaply as possible, i.e. monetizing your molecules and resources, while putting the clear technology and innovation-driven steps to take those informed bets and investments in renewables. And that takes a lot of uh, study, and there are a lot of lessons around efficiency that we do still continue to benefit from F1. Um, I, I'm trying to uh, condense that all into a, a short answer there. I, I don't know how, how well I've uh, explained it. <laughs> Thank you, but uh, the image of, of exercising that other muscle and, and combining both the evolutionary change and the revolutionary, uh, Mariah, that has your name written all over it. Thank you, Michael. Thank you. Uh, well, we've, we've heard in your, in your last comments, Tinku and Toto, about a third key piece of what we see as important for leaders in managing these kinds of challenges and opportunities that you started off talking uh, with us about at the start of the hour. Uh, and in a way we've come full circle. Now we're talking about it in the context of long-term sustainability challenges, not just the immediate lives and livelihood tensions of the pandemic. Um, and, and we can see in the comments, and we've discussed already, the value of experimenting and learning, and clearly that's something that you're doing in your organizations. Also in your commitment as leaders and in your organization's commitment to really both the, the uh, present, the short-term demands and needs of the organization and of our world, uh, and the long-term, right? And that's in the in the purpose and vision that, that we heard from each of you. And that both-and approach is, of course, really critical in that commitment coming from the leader. But I think the new and really a critical piece that we can start to pick up in, in the most recent comments is around how you really set stakes in the ground to hold yourself to those short-term, but especially to the long-term commitments that aren't the immediate day-to-day, -day, but that really you need to start addressing and grappling with now to prepare yourself to the for the future. And interestingly, the metaphor that we use in our work on leadership is one of guardrails. 
that what you need to do as a leader, and of course, very apt in this context, is to set out guardrails for yourself and for your organization to hold you to both the short term and the long term. And I think we heard a bit about how Tenku, you're doing that in your organization uh, and Toto as well. And so it's really the trio of the experimenting and learning that both and the short term and the long term commitment and mindset and then operationalizing by really setting in stone, whether it's representatives, checkpoints, metrics, goals, outside stakeholders whose voices you're bringing in uh, and who are holding you accountable, those kinds of guardrails to ensure that the long term doesn't just get pushed further and further out, but that you're starting to attend and grapple with it today. I'm mindful that we only have a, a few minutes left, but obviously a, a big commitment that was being made uh, by the team in the last season is, of course, the, the change in livery um, in response uh, to the Black Lives Matter movement, uh, the legendary Silver Arrows now, now racing in black. Uh, a very, very strong symbolic commitment, uh, but of course one that has also been followed up by plans uh, between Lewis and, and the team to drive diversity. So beyond this very symbolic commitment going forward, um, Toto, what, what can we expect uh, from the team in kind of making diversity um, stick for, for the future? What are the more substantive uh, changes that are underfoot to make uh, Formula One more diverse? Within the team, we certainly had a big advantage in terms of uh, learning of the, of the struggles that, that Lewis has encountered in his life. But in a way, it all started with the Black Lives Matter movement. And the idea that was that was born to change delivery was just a starting point. And what what I've seen in the organization that is that we took it really serious. It couldn't just it couldn't end with the PR um, stunt of painting the car black. Having said that, painting a silver arrow that is the color of Mercedes since since the beginning black is quite a is quite a statement. And um, I must really say that when the idea was born not only the Mercedes board was so approachable about it, but also us calling, calling our partners and patronas up and saying, you know, this is a last minute change. Are you up for, for a black car? And not one gave us a hard, hard time on that topic. But obviously the organization then, or within our organization, we said, we can't just leave it at that. We need to be serious. We need to co commit resources in order to um, bring really meaningful change. And what we've done in coordination with Lewis, we've created a joint foundation um, that is aiming to really increase the diversity within our organizations. We have institutionalized that project by giving it a name that is Accelerate 2025, 20, where we aim to hire at least 25% of all new applicants and starters in our organization from diverse background and underprivileged background. We have a cooperation with the Marlbury Trust that manages of schools in underprivileged um, areas of London to encourage and inspires, inspire pupils to join the industry. A program that is called STEMETS, where um, the women in our organization mentor young, uh, younger children in school uh, and to show them about the opportunities that exist around STEM. And, and all of that is really with the aim of, of not only leaving it as a, as a marketing action with the black car, but really following up and being the industry leader um, in diversity 
and setting new standards. Because like Lewis obliged us to act, we are obliging all the other teams and Formula One and the FA, the governing body, to act and follow us. Great. For closing comments then, Tenku, what, what's the partnership between Mercedes and, and uh, Petronas going to look like um, off track? Um, obviously, you have a very uh, a supreme track record on track. Um, how are you going to engage together in these kind of broader questions around sustainability, diversity, and, and the big questions that lie ahead of both of your respective organizations? I, I, diversity and sustainability is an inescapable requirement as you deal with uh, the variety of challenges. And it only serves to enrich and strengthen every, every organization. And I'm not just reading that out of a, a piece of paper. I, I sincerely believe that. I think you have, uh, you have the need for diversity in order to promote sustainability because the diversity of ideas is what's going to propel you into new uh, innovative spaces, as uh, Toto has also very clearly alluded to. And I think, uh, just continuing on, to, on what uh, Toto had mentioned earlier, uh, it is not just branding or it's not just livery. Uh, when you make a stand on diversity and sustainability, you have to follow through because it really just presents what you stand for. Uh, we, we've seen, I think Toto knows, of course, Stephanie is one of, uh, uh, Stephanie Travers works uh, as a trackside fluid engineer. Uh, we have, I'm just literally pro probably about uh, 600, 700 meters away from our uh, Fluid Technology Solutions HQ here in, in KL. Of course, it's nighttime. Uh, the, teams, uh, the teams here work hand uh, in glove with, uh, with the team in, in, uh, in Bricksworth to make sure that we get these new innovative solutions and it, it is a diversity of ideas that's going to get you past this very very challenging period so a lot of lessons that we've taken out of this have been now uh, replicated uh, we're changing out leadership we're moving away from uh, the preconceived notion that uh, ladies can't do what, what they're expected to do in the oil and gas industry i think if anyone visits our website you can see that a lot of those stereotypes have been set aside. We've got very, very much uh, active leadership at all levels by women. Uh, we're, we're a family of 48,000 staff uh, constituting people from Canada, Mexico, Brazil, in, in South Africa, as well as a large part of the Southeast Asian uh, uh, geography. So we do have this diversity of ideas and they've reached leadership levels inside Petronas and long may it continue. And that does take us to the checkered flag. Uh, apologies to many of you who've posted fascinating questions um, in the chat. Sorry that we did not get to all of you. Uh, as I'm sure you all understand, um, the excitement and Formula One and some of the challenges lying ahead uh, probably take a lot more than one hour to um, uncover. Um, so at this point, thank you very much to all the panelists. Enjoy the rest of the day and see you again for leadership in extraordinary times. My thanks to Professor Michael Schmetz, Professor Mariah Besheroff, Toto Wolf, and Tengu Tafik. My name is Peter Tufano, and you've been listening to Leadership in Extraordinary Times, a podcast from Oxford University's Said Business School. If you'd like more information about this episode and the Leadership in Extraordinary Times series, please visit us at oxfordanswers.org and subscribe to future episodes wherever you get your podcasts. Do join us next time when we'll be taking a deep dive into the regenerative economy. Until then, thanks for listening.